On the wall of the Special Forces Memorial Court at Fort Bragg, the words of the prophet Isaiah are etched in stone. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Master Sergeant Gary Gordon and Sergeant First Class Randall Sugar answered that call. Today we inscribe their lives and their deeds in the distinguished and valorous history of this country's men and women in uniform. We pray that God will embrace their souls and may their service and sacrifice inspire generations to come. Master Sergeant Gary Gordon and Sergeant First Class Randall Schugert were real American heroes. During the military operation in Mogadishu on October 3rd, two American helicopters were downed by hostile fire. Although United States Army Rangers established a defensive perimeter around the first downed helicopter, they could not reach the second one quickly by land. In the wreckage of this helicopter lay four injured Army crewmen. Another helicopter with Sergeants Gordon and Schugert on board was dispatched to provide cover from above. But they came under withering fire, and the two sergeants instinctively understood that if the downed crew was to stand a chance of survival, someone would have to get them on the ground. Immediately, Sergeants Gordon and Schugert volunteered to go. They were told, no, it's too dangerous. They volunteered again. Again, they were told, no. They volunteered a third time and permission finally was granted. Sergeants Gordon and Schugert knew their own chances of survival were extremely bleak. The pilot of their helicopter said that anyone in their right mind would never have gone in. But they insisted on it because they were comrades in danger, because they believed passionately in the creed that says, I will not fail those with whom I serve. And so they asked their pilot to hover just above the ground and they jumped into the ferocious firefight. The citations that will be read shortly describe the extraordinary courage that Sergeants Gordon and Schugert demonstrated in the battle that followed. Gary Gordon and Randall Schugert died in the most courageous and selfless way any human being can act. They risked their lives without hesitation they gave their lives to save others. Their actions were clearly above and beyond the call of duty. Today, on behalf of the United States Congress, I award them both the Medal of Honor. By direction of the President, authorized by Act of Congress, March 3rd, 1863, the Medal of Honor for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of life above and beyond the call of duty is awarded in the name of Congress to Master Sergeant Gary I. Gordon, United States Army. Master Sergeant Gary I. Gordon, United States Army, distinguished himself by actions above and beyond the call of duty on 3 October 1993 while serving as sniper team member, United States Army Special Operations Command with Task Force Ranger in Mogadishu, Somalia. Master Sergeant Gordon's sniper team provided precision fires from the lead helicopter during an assault and at two helicopter crash sites while subjected to intense automatic weapons and rocket-propelled grenade fires. 
When Master Sergeant Gordon learned that ground forces were not immediately available to secure the second crash site, he and another sniper unhesitatingly volunteered to be inserted to protect the four critically wounded personnel, despite being well aware of the growing number of enemy personnel closing in on the site. After his third request to be inserted, Master Sergeant Gordon received permission to perform his volunteer mission. When debris and enemy ground fires at the site caused him to abort the first attempt, Master Sergeant Gordon was inserted 100 meters south of the crash site. Equipped with only his sniper rifle and a pistol, Master Sergeant Gordon and his fellow sniper, while under intense small arms fire from the enemy, fought their way through a dense maze of shanties and shacks to reach the critically injured crew members. Master Sergeant Gordon immediately pulled the pilot and the other crew members from the aircraft, establishing a perimeter which placed him and his fellow sniper in the most vulnerable position. Master Sergeant Gordon used his long-range rifle and sidearm to kill an undetermined number of attackers until he depleted his ammunition. Master Sergeant Gordon then went back to the wreckage, recovering some of the crew's weapons and ammunition. Despite the fact that he was critically low on ammunition, he provided some of it to the dazed pilot and then radioed for help. Master Sergeant Gordon continued to travel the perimeter, protecting the downed crew. After his team member was fatally wounded and his own rifle ammunition exhausted, Master Sergeant Gordon returned to the wreckage, recovering a rifle with the last five rounds of ammunition and gave it to the pilot with the words, good luck. Then, armed only with his pistol, Master Sergeant Gordon continued to fight until he was fatally wounded. His actions saved the pilot's life. Master Sergeant Gordon's extraordinary heroism and devotion to duty were in keeping with the highest standards of military service and reflect great credit on him, his unit, and the United States Army. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with my co-host, Tim Kozak, the creator of the Veterans Project. And we have a special guest on with us today, Command Sergeant Major Tom Satterley. Gentlemen, how's it going? Uh, Good, John. Thanks for having me on. Hey, John. Great to be on, as always. Great to co-host. And uh, it's a wonderful thing to be on the the podcast. I can't wait to uh, have this conversation with Tom. It's going to be great. Yeah, yeah. Tom served for a number of years in the Army. Uh, I believe the majority of that was in special operations. You know, we're going to get into all of that. Tim, you know, as the audience knows, Tim is the creator of the Veterans Project. Um, He's doing some really cool stuff, as always. You know, Tim is always on the road. Can you talk about the guy you just covered briefly, Tim, or do you want to save that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'd love to speak about him. Actually, I've covered... Two veterans in the past few days uh, with uh, incredible histories, Uh, one being a 
uh, a lieutenant uh, during the Battle of the Bulge. Um, he served uh, with the 99th Infantry Division, which was the Pennsylvania National Guard. And he served over during the Battle of the Bulge, Siegfried Line. Um, he was involved in, you know, some very, very heavy action, had some absolutely incredible stories. Um, actually went on to be uh, very successful. He was 23 years, so he retired as lieutenant colonel uh, and went on to be an avocado farmer and built his own uh, set of wineries. And now he's writing poetry, uh, nice. almost 99 years old. Um, but his stories were just impeccable. He's, he's the epitome of leadership and honorable leadership and just the kind of man that you want to know. And then there's another veteran, uh, his, and that guy's name is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sam Lombardo. The other veteran that I covered is a veteran of the French Resistance, uh, grew up, uh, was in, lived in France for 18 years. The Germans uh, occupied France, I believe, when he was about 11 or 12 and at about 16, um, he evaded German capture, uh, basically, uh, you know, I won't get into too much detail, but evaded German capture in a very creative way at 16 years old and then became a part of the French resistance, basically because he had no choice at that point because he was in hiding. He was selected to be in a, uh, in a work camp, so he evaded that camp and, uh, and then went on to fight with the resistance and was also involved in the Battle of Metz, the Battle for Metz with the uh, Patton's Third Army. So what happened is Patton's Third Army adopted the French resistance group because they were such fierce fighters that he realized he could really use them in America's army. So he kind of took the French resistance under their wing and they were a part of the Battle for Metz. So um, I don't know if you're too familiar. Not very many people are too familiar with the Battle for Metz, but we lost over 10,000 GIs in that battle. Um, and he made it through. And um, I asked him, you know, one of my questions was, how did you make it through Metz? And he said, well, no bullets hit me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know, now he lives in Santa Rosa Beach, Florida. He's lived here about 40 years. He worked for the Navy um, doing uh, stuff that required a Secret Service style uh, type of uh, security classification so he couldn't talk too much in detail but it required his French that's all I know so um, he did that for about 40 years and um, now he's retired in Santa Rosa Beach Florida still sp speaks uh, perfect French uh, speaks German and um, it was just an incredible story and honor to have you know it, it's really different spin on the veterans project to be able to gather a French resistance uh, soldier because from what I know he was the youngest guy he said all the guys in his outfit are dead now. They're gone. So um, I don't know how many French resistance um, soldiers are left, but I know he's, you know, he's one of the few left. Right. Can't I mean, wait those stories. Wow. Yeah, those stories are incredible. I mean, you know, you think about some of the, the fights now that take place and obviously, you know, they're intense as, um, you know, you guys would know. And then, but then to think that, you know, 10,000 guys killed in one battle, like that's just insane, you know? Yeah, it is. And it, the, the violence and the level of action, you know, and the way that these men describe it is just incredible um, because they treat it like it was just kind of a part of a part of the deal and that, you know, they they kind of just, you know, thought it was, you know, at any moment they knew their time could be up and they were OK with that. And uh, when you see some of these stories come up, especially from him in that Battle of Bulge, uh, Lieutenant Sam Lombardo, when he tells you some of those uh, things it was just it, it, it's incredible you're going to read these things you're going to go how can that that, that sounds literally when uh i was sitting there with my videographer we looked at each other and we said 
this sounds like a movie that Steven Spielberg would direct. Like, yeah. you know, you expect right. to see this on the big screen. I mean, but it's even more, it's, it's, it's even more authentic and more incredible than that. You know, it's hard to describe those right. kinds of actions, but yeah, absolutely. Two incredible men, um, you know, and, and, um, you know, just, just an incredible story and talking on the reintegration side uh, a little bit, actually, Sam's uh, best friend, one of his best friends, is Arnold Palmer, the golfing legend. So, oh, no way. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's some some incredible. Uh, you know, it's not over when you're done serving, as you know, Tom. Um, you know, it, it's that transition piece is hard, but you're. Uh, I be- I'm a big believer in you know your best days always being ahead of you and continuing to serve your nation in the highest capacity that you can. Absolutely, and always. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, Tom, uh, you served for a number of years in the Army. Um, can you just quickly kind of talk about what you did, where you ended up, and then we'll walk through what motivated you to join the Army and then kind of go through your, your time in the military? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I started out as a combat engineer. Um, I spent three years in Germany in a combat engineer mechanized unit and was just kind of drugged down with that. So I wasn't going to reenlist, but when I decided to reenlist, um, due to some things that changed my life, I uh, reenlisted for airborne school just to get to Fort Bragg so I could get to the Green Beret recruiters. And then so I made uh, the Special Force Qualification course, did a six-month um, course there after selection, and then I went to Persian Farsi school for four months. And then that's when I was approached to join the unit. And I was had been in about five years at that time. And so I went to selection in the spring of 90, uh, actually 91, and made selection and went went straight back to Fort Bragg and spent 20 years there in the unit. Okay. And uh, and you finished up as a command sergeant major at the unit? Uh, as a squadron command sergeant major. Okay. Okay. All right, cool. So then now let's let's kind of talk about you know, some of your early experiences, uh, you know, particularly at the unit, I, I know, um, well, I'm going to assume, you know, one of the first times that you saw some action was in Mogadishu, uh, during the Black Hawk Down incident. Yes. Um, had been in the unit two years, just training for, you know, whatever training to save a life or take a life, whatever was required. And, uh, I love the training and, and, you know, you never fully expect what combat will be. I had missed, Panama, I had missed the first Gulf War due to being, you know, non-deployable because I had a selection date. So you kind of feel like you're missing out. You want to go to combat. You know, there's, there's those kind of people who, who wants to be in a firefight and the hands that go up. I'm like, yeah, you've never been in a firefight then because if you're saying you want to get back in one. You probably have not been in one. So in 93, when Black Hawk Down kicked off, we had done about four or five missions already in Somalia. None were too uh, too dynamic. It was all high fives when we were back. Everybody everybody did what they were supposed to do. Nobody got really hurt. And then uh, 3 October kicked off. And that was, at the time, the longest sustained firefight since Vietnam. You know, what started as a one-hour mission turned into an 18-hour sustained firefight. And uh, that's, that's really an eye-opener to step into combat like that. I don't think any combat is, is marginal. Um but to step into an 18-hour firefight after, you know, four or five easygoing missions where nothing really happens. And that's kind of what you think of it. You know, the good guys always win. And then all of a sudden you're surrounded by about five or 10,000 militiamen who don't want you to go home anymore. 
kind of changes your perspective a bit. But I can imagine, and and I remember, um, you know, when when some uh, some of some part of it was on the news, you know, I, I think uh, maybe it was some pilots that they were dragging them through the streets, and when that was broadcasted back in the states, it just kind of shocked everybody. Um, you know, as Vietnam was the first conflict where people were able to like see it as it was happening, you know, because there were journalists and reporters on the ground. And I think it it had been so long since then when people saw that happening in Mogadishu, it just kind of shocked everybody back home, you know? It it shocked us as well. Um, when we finally made it back on four October and, uh, we, nobody really has a clear picture of what's going on totally at the time. You're, you're in your little bubble, and uh, that's what you see, and you don't know what's going on across the street or down the street. Um, we got back to the hangar, and, and when things started calming down a bit, and the TV's on and I'm watching the news, and I, I literally for the first time saw that and couldn't believe what was happening as well. Um, it's just a shocker for us that we're there, is, you know, that the the viciousness of who we were going after and what they were doing to our, to our soldiers. Right. And I know, like, you know, the movie doesn't uh, really explain it in great detail, but, you know, that wasn't the only mission that was ran there. And you guys are there for a little while running successful missions uh, prior to that day, right? Yes, sir. Um, we had, I'd say we'd, we we conducted four missions um, going after different, different level leaders and, and trying to, you know, just work your way to the top. And then I think in the movie they they cap, they they show a little bit of the Osman auto capture who was his financier. Yeah. And it, it s- sort of went down that way. No, you know there was none of us sitting in in the market drinking tea and passing intelligence along. That you you just didn't blend in too well there. Right. You know we're using locals whatever we can, and we got word that he was moving in a vehicle, and we had not done much vehicle interdiction from a helicopter, so. We're tracking his motorcade moving through the town and just trying to pick a good spot to stop it and, and roll up everybody in that vehicle. And um, snipers ended up taking out the driver, um, shooting him in the legs. I mean, and then they 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 bailed out of the vehicle, ran into several different buildings, and that's when we inserted onto the ground. And um, actually, I was in a bird that was still hovering at the time waiting to go in. And they finally started taking a little bit of heavy fire for the first time on that mission. So they called our, our bird in and we landed at one of the intersections. And as soon as we hit, we were under automatic fire down the street. And a, a buddy of mine just took off running in that direction. I don't know if we got confused with near and far ambush and salt through the near one and, you know, and get out of the way of the far one. Cause this was pretty far away. And it's just kind of an action that the reaction that we hit, we hit the ground under fire. We started running towards it. And we realized that everybody else had popped down behind a pile of rocks in the street, which was probably a better idea. So we realized on both sides of that alleyway, you know, the walls are up and everybody's got their gates closed. And there was nowhere for us to hide and duck in behind until we finally found um, an inset doorway about halfway down that alleyway. And that was kind of a that was kind of a rude awakening. And that's that's when we that's kind of when, you know, you have some leaders, some little higher level leaders because the, the resistance gets heavier fast. And um, you ended up taking out that 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 automatic weapon and then they kept trying to feed it with people and we kept suppressing it and then finally i got called across the street to pull some security on the detainees and one of them was osman auto and if you go to the special ops museum at fort bragg um there's some sunglasses there a roll of money and some other notes that i'd taken out of his pocket when i was when i was searching him wow and uh 
And we ended up having to exfil off of the roof of that building because we were under fire and just taking fire from all directions. And I remember the Digfer Hospital was was maybe a half a mile away. We were taking fire from the hospital actually as well. So we're trying not to fire back. It's a hospital, and you know it's a little hard to be that accurate at that distance. Well, the bad guys don't have that option. They they just shoot at whatever. And uh, I think that was my first, my very first um, up front and close and personal where I had to actually uh, kill somebody. We're we're like one. Of, we're second to last team to exfil, and we're pushing our way up from the ground to the second floor, and then up to the roof. And there was a team on the roof, exfilling out of. You know, the one wheel landing with a Black Hawk. And I think the pilots say this like 60 hours of flying wrapped up into two minutes with everything you have to do to keep it hovering with one wheel on the lip of a building with guys climbing in it. And then, oh, by the way, they're getting shot at and they, they have to remain calm. So bless those pilots for their skills as well. And uh, I'm on the second floor and I'm looking across the street and this, this guy pops out of a window with an AK and he's aiming it up at the helicopter on and I just had that moment of, oh, oh, no, you know, what to do? And his his weapon jams, and, and it seems like a five-minute period, but it all happened within about a, probably a second. And uh, his weapon jams, he's he's trying to rack it back, and that's just when I, you know, one of those moments where you just find clarity. Maybe they call it buck fever for hunters, and it's just that deep breath, look at the aim point, and pull the trigger. And I remember the weapon flying out of the window, the guy disappearing into the room, and I just nothing but elation, like whoa! What you know? I'm, I'm, I remember turning around, going, "Hey, great!" Screaming for my team leader. Did you see that? And of course, nobody saw. It. <laughs> I was like, "I just shot that guy in the head," and and he's like, "Okay, great, do your job." And, you know, that, that was it. So I'm pretty young. I mean, that's my very first kind of time doing it, and then you know, and that was probably the last time I felt elation doing it. Um, I know I saved the guys' lives. They might have shot the helicopter down, shot a pilot, or shot anybody. And I and you know, and I stopped it. You you get that. It, that feeling of happiness, but I think that's the very last time I ever felt um, good about taking a life. You know, if you know what I mean, it just, uh, I don't know, maybe it's the first one. And then after that, you know, everything's horrible. I don't know, but I just specifically remember those moments. And then it was time to go up to the roof and climb out on our, on our own ourselves. I was the last guy off the roof grabbing a hold of this tire. They forgot to lock the, the brake on spinning and trying to climb up into this helicopter and just wondering if somebody was hanging out of a window waiting to shoot me as well. Hey Tom, I got a question for you throughout that time, you know, in those, those early moments of, you know, first, you know, getting there and, and then getting into firefight. And what was the realization like, you know, or was there a moment I asked this, you know, my guys quite often on the project, but what was the moment of realization for you when you were there? Were you, did you feel frightened? Did you feel apprehensive or, or was there pretty, you know, or, or did you feel that clarity? Did you feel anger? What, what were the feelings when you were first getting into those moments? You know, training completely takes over. We had trained for so many years and, and every hour of the day was, was just, you know, immersed in training and doing our job. And so when the situation kicks off, in, in Somalia, it, I literally don't remember feeling anything other than doing my job and wanting to do my job right and afraid that I would do my job poorly and somebody would get hurt. I was never – I don't ever remember thinking of myself until 3 October, and I don't ever remember being afraid until 3 – I mean until 3 October. I think I was too young to be afraid. I think I was too stupid, to be honest, um, <laughs> to be afraid and um, – and inexperienced. And then up until 
even with all the shooting going back and forth, and then up until 3 October when we turned the corner after leaving the target site and we're going to the first crash site, um, you have that feeling of invincibility. You know, we're Americans. We got the best kit. We're the best trained. I don't, I, and, and I'm speaking for myself, and I know some friends have said the same thing. I mean, we're wearing plastic helmets. You know, we're wearing Protex. And I had redesigned my entire Kevlar to be as small as possible and sewed my own kit together. Um, and it was light and fast was what, what, what I wanted to be. And until I saw them dragging Earl um, into a building across the street, his lifeless body, I, after just seeing him shooting down the street, it doesn't dawn on you that, you know, you're not invincible and those bullets do go both ways. And I know some other people have been killed already up to this point, but we don't know it. That's right. the first one I, that I had actually seen. And, and then later on in that night, and I'm still doing my job. I'm still, I think about Earl, I push on and then I'm still doing my job. There's too much going on to stop and, and think about it. And adrenaline is flowing through your body. And then when things calm down a little bit, you get that adrenaline dump and you just feel like you're going to pass out, you know, but you can't because they keep coming and coming after you. And when we were running out of ammo, we had no water, food, um, no night vision. And all I could hear is gunfire going on for hours and hours in the city. And I remember asking my team leader, you know, is that, what is that gunfire? Is that incoming, outgoing? He's like, eh, he's such he a stoic person. He was like, both. I'm like, okay, I'm looking for information here. Um, <laughs> and, and I said, do you think they're going to make it? And his answer was, I hope so. <laughs> you know, so we're, we're out of ammo. My team leader's not really helping motivate me to get past that hump. And I think I had that moment in my life where I accepted that I was going to die. Um, I didn't think we were getting out of there. They just kept coming and coming and nobody else could get to us. And I think that that moment of clarity, if that's what I would call it, um, or acceptance that, you know what, I'm just going to do as much damage as I can until I do get killed. Uh, and I'm going to do as much good as I can and try to get out of here. But I wasn't expecting it. And I think that's when my, my, my switch flipped, you know, to where no more fear, no more anything. I accepted death and I was just doing my job again. Wow. And I, I really never thought about that until I did a, an interview I think within the last week and they, they actually posed that question to me. Did it ever, did I ever have a switch flip like you just did? And I'm like, I, I never thought that I did until I thought about it. And I remember the moment now that I just had given in to, I'm not getting out of here. There's nothing else to worry about, but what I can do while I'm here right now. And, uh, kind of helped me at the time. I think it screwed me for the rest of my life, but it helped me at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, that, the last instance that you just spoke about, that was as you guys were moving to the first crash site? Yes. Um, that that moment of clarity was several hours later in that house that we were at. But Earl got shot. Um, we're pushing from the target building east. And then we a couple of blocks getting shot at by hundreds and hundreds of, of Somalis on every intersection that we crossed. And we had given up security for speed to try to get there first. They were trying to race us there and we we're trying to race them there. So. We're just volleying back and forth as we pass each intersection. And they're already north a couple blocks, and we have to turn north a couple blocks. And I think when we turned, the side of the street I was on was the western side of the street. Earl and some other teams with Rangers were on the right side of the street. And I think it was lit up more by the sun. I don't know why they took so much more fire on that side of the street. Um, we, we took some as well, but it just seemed like a lot of the 
deaths and injuries were on that side of the street. And uh, we had turned to go north, and we'd made it a couple of houses, and then they were dragging Earl into a building, and I, I'm pretty sure that's where they held up the entire night. And we went about another eight to ten houses down to the intersection of the crash site and took those two houses down at the corner of the intersection. And our teams were mixed up by now. And uh, and we took our house down on the, on the northwestmost side of where everybody was. And the helicopter was across the street on the east, on the, you know, the northeastmost side of where everyone else was. was. And uh, I think our house had one adult male and two or three adult females and about four or five, uh, you know, kids. And we just handcuffed the male, put them all in the living room as far back from the street as we could. Cause now, you know, it's our job to protect them now. And, uh, who had no idea who they were. They're probably just, you know, the family that lives there and didn't want anything to do with it either. But now their house is getting picked apart all night long. And of course we're there. And, uh, so that's, that's kind of, that's where we spent the rest of the night. The, the hit before that went, half okay you know until until i think we were just there just long enough that um everybody started surrounding us and wouldn't let us out and when you said the teams were mixed up by then did you mean mixed up with unit guys or mixed up with rangers and unit guys no both we were we were just jumbled together in whatever group you were at we're pushing down both sides of the street people are getting injured and pulling inside the buildings and, and strong pointing those um, um there was we had the headquarters element with us on our in our building when it finally settled down, and we had a, a mix of, of F team and G team took down our building, and then that team leader went across the street and found his team. We ended up having some Rangers pulling security on our on our corner that got hit with an RPG that that we went out and drug into our building and you know did first aid on them all night, and as well as across the street, the same thing. They had some Rangers, one of them. One of them ended up bleeding out, and I think that's portrayed in the movie as well. But just his femoral artery, they couldn't get it. They couldn't clamp it down. They couldn't uh, get a hold of it. He just slowly, slowly bled out. But uh, as much as guys could, they, they got back to team integrity, you know, um, once we got settled. But that was kind of difficult with all the gunfire going on. Right, and I'm, I'm sure it's pretty confusing and stuff like that. Um, so uh, another you know, bit of this incident that was, you know, well known, and it was obviously it was portrayed in the movie as well. Was when the uh, two unit snipers went to um, go defend one of the crash sites. Was that the same crash site that you guys ended up at, or was that the other one? That was crash site number two. Um, it was kind of designate crash site one and two, and uh, that was number two. And they were the only ones at that crash site, and we and we had little knowledge of that that, that going on as well. You know, with everything else going on, they're trying to get the convoys to to determine where to turn from the helicopter calling down. And by the time that they would say turn right with the delay in the commo, they'd already be past that intersection. So they'd turn right on the next one, which wasn't a good street to turn down. And that kind of that incident was going on, you know, without my knowledge at that time until till the next day. Yeah. And, and you know, they were both uh, awarded the Medal of Honor for their actions there. Um, Absolutely. They were begging to go in multiple times and denied. And then finally, the, I think the call was, you know, it's it's on you, you know. So they told the pilots to go ahead and insert them as, as close as they could. And they ended up pushing through streets and buildings as well on their own to the crash site and actually pulled Durant out and plopped him up in a, into a place where he could more easily defend himself and assist. 
And then I, I think they just ran out of ammo and got overwhelmed with, you know, numbers. Yeah. And I mean, that, that, you know, they were awarded the Medal of Honor and, you know, those actions, are, I just can't even like fathom, you know, to be able to make that decision. Cause it's like, you know, you say, you know what, I'm going to go in and then they deny you. And then you're like, all right, you know what, forget it. But they continue to request to go in knowing the risk. And it's, in, in my opinion, it's one of the most honorable things that I've, I've ever read about. Absolutely. And they were, they were both the, those type of people. I mean, almost, I think everybody I worked with was that type of person. Um, Gary and Randy were definitely, definitely like that. And, and being in the helicopter and wanting to be on the ground and, and being out of the action. I mean, not, you're not out of the action. You're still, they're still working from the air, but I, I could only imagine their feelings of wanting to get down there or how they would have felt had they not gotten down there. It probably would have been worse for them. Right. Yeah, and that's something that I'm curious about, Tom. I mean, you talk, you you speak about that in, when you were talking earlier about you know just being part of the job and what you were doing, and you knew that that was those were actions you had to take. So, do you think by then? I mean, obviously, those were incredible actions, but that's kind of the mindset of the unit. Is that of of the guys in your unit? Is just that you is that you commit to those actions and you know it's part of the job. And if you're not on the ground, you feel like you're not doing your job. Absolutely. Uh, there's a couple of hits we did before that, that my team was stuck in the air, hovering, waiting, waiting. And I hated it. Hated it. I wanted to get involved. I mean, my butt was going numb. I sat so long in the helicopter and <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out ways to get in, you know, and we're doing crowd control and we're, I got beanbag rounds and stun grenades to keep people away from the assaulters. But it's a miserable feeling to want to be on the ground, especially when the bullets start flying to help and not, not be put in. And I, I, I can, I know what they were going through and I know what anybody that does their job well in, in the military that wants to do their job, you know, would, would want to not get a chance to do their job. You don't think about, well, I'm going to die. I mean, it might cross your mind, but for the most part, it's I need to get in there and do my job and help out. Right. So, so now, um, you know, you experienced Mogadishu and, you know, fast forward a couple of years, the global war on terror kicks off, uh, 2001, you also have experiences and deployments during this conflict, which turns out to be our longest conflict as well, right? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's like it's a never-ending one now. Right. Right. So uh, you, you have been to Iraq and Afghanistan? Uh, I've been to Iraq and other parts of the Middle East, yes. Okay. Okay. So I, I wanted to ask you, you know, as someone who was in before 2001 and someone who served afterwards, what what were some of the differences to you? And if maybe you can just explain some of that and go through, you know, how your mindset changed and maybe how the training might have changed and how the, the culture um, at the unit might might have changed. Yeah, Somalia changed the way I think all the military conducted mount and it definitely changed the way that we attacked targets. Our, our charter is hostage rescue, and that's what goes through our head, hostage rescue or high-value targets. But mostly it was hostage rescue for us. You know, go in, put your life in danger to save the hostage no matter what, what it takes. So we're rushing into these buildings with no one to save. 
and 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 that's that's a higher threat level for you and and we've lost a lot of guys so we revamped that fast forward global war on terror starts off um you know we conduct the longest infiltration in the history of aviation into afghanistan conduct missions and then We've learned that lesson a bit, but now we have a younger generation again that's 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 here, and they're well-trained, but the lessons we learned in Somalia, guys have moved on, and, and they're lost a bit. And even myself, I found myself repeating some of the same bad mistakes of of not going in with enough water or, you know, a day mission where I almost didn't take my night vision. You know, it's like, nope, never go anywhere without my night vision ever again, and always right. have water. And found myself on a mission in Iraq one time where – we infilled and immediately right away the helicopter, the Black Hawk gets hit with an RPG on infill, crash lands across the field. I have to send a, a team, you know, a group of Rangers over there to, to protect that. So there's half my force taking fire from other buildings around, plus the guys on the target who were dubbed a wedding party, turned out to be an Al Qaeda training cell conducting IMT training. So they had all their weapons ready to go and just shot the helo down on infill. People are squirting out of the target, and I don't know where anybody is, so it's hard to engage targets running around because you don't want to shoot friendlies or shoot through and into a friendly. And um, that turns out to be another long night. And in my mind, we're going to burn the helo and get out of there, right? They're like, no, we're sending in a dart team, a downed aircraft rescue team. And I'm like, what is that again? What do you? Let's just get out of here. They're like, no, no, we can fix this. And so we have to secure this building and the site, and we've got. Uh, one of my friends um, had entered one of the rooms that they found off the side of the house when I'm inside um, conducting battlefield interrogation on some of the, the people in the house. And I hear this radio squawk go off and an explosion in the next room. And I just knew something bad had happened to one of my guys. And um, he had gone in and found a suicide bomber, engaged him, but the guy, t- you know, cacked off his vest. And I think it was some grenades. And uh, as well as the car parked in the, in the, uh, the carport next to that room was so full of explosives, we couldn't even touch it. It would have taken out several houses around us. So now we're trying to launch the QRF, which is two tanks and two Bradleys coming our way, um, waiting to get this helicopter fixed, which means we have to fly in new pilots and new parts, and everybody's out of water. And I'm thinking, once again, I did it. I, I let my men down. I didn't bring in, you know, I, I forgot a lesson I'd learned before. So reinstitute those old lessons learned, you know, bring in an extra two cases of water and throw an IR chem light on it, kick it out. Who cares if you leave it behind? But if you get stuck, you have, you have water for everybody later, you know, just those lessons learned. But we stopped rushing into targets. We started surrounding them and giving, you know, you know, I, I called it make the enemy vote, surround the building at night, day, whatever, sneak up on them, surround it, get on the bullhorn, tell them to come on out, get the women and kids out, you know, call, conducting a call out. And if there wasn't if there wasn't any hostages to rescue, there was no need to rush in. Of course, we want the intel, but there's no reason to die for it. We'll get it. Um, so if nobody comes out, then we escalate a little bit. You know, throw a flashbang, shoot a flashbang grenade at the front door, then maybe blow the door open, and then maybe send in canine with cameras and, and search the entire structure to see if it's empty or what's in there because they were baiting us. You know, they learn your techniques like you learn their techniques. Right. right. So. A lot of people are like, oh, Al Qaeda is stupid. The enemy's stupid. No, no, no. <laughs> they're not. They might be uneducated, but they're not stupid. And they'll bait you. They know what you're coming for, and they know how you find them, and they bait you. And we've we've entered into houses fully loaded to blow up, and we're lucky they didn't go off. You know. So 
surround the house, give him a chance to come out. And then finally, as a last resort, go in the house and take it down and then clear it, you know? So we've, we've learned to back off of it and not be in a rush to die, so to speak. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting point that you bring up, you know, when you talk about how people think that, you know, maybe the, these guys are stupid and don't know what they're doing. I think that's kind of a popular misconception in, in the West, I would say. No, um, definitely. They, they might be uneducated, but they definitely know how to, how to uh, conduct conflict for many, many years and how to shoot their weapons. Right. And they, I think, uh, Tom, and, you know, when I was dealing with some of those top level detainees overseas, you know, and, and the leadership as well as, um, you know, we, we were dealing with guys that had three and four degrees, you know, I mean, some of them, you know, doctorates from American universities, you know, and things such as electrical engineering. So, you know, with files, you know, <laughs> you know, that would make most people's book collections look meager. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. so these, these guys at the top, especially in, you know, the leadership levels at, you know, a lot of them are very educated and they're kind of passing down that information, obviously, just as, you know, leadership does over here. But, um, as you said, you know, they're even the lower levels, they, they might not be educated, like you said, but they're, uh, definitely not stupid. And, can you can you speak a little more to the to the adaptations that you saw within that? And I, I wanted to kind of trace back a little bit to what you saw with the Somalis. What was it like fighting that enemy, and what were they specifically um, like as an enemy? They, they it was their home turf. Um, they knew the streets, they knew the layout, and they knew where the houses were and where the good and bad were, and. And there were so many of them that they obviously would embolden each other, you know. Um, right, right. I know that the, the radio calls coming in from the ISR stated they had convoys of people flooding into the area, um, just truckloads and truckloads. And there was a there was talk back and forth on what to do with those convoys. Can you ID weapons? Are they really coming to you know help with the fight, or can we take them out before they get there? Versus now they you know get out of the vehicles and spread out and start coming after us, but. They were tenacious, um, and then they were also unorganized to a point where at some point in the night, it had settled down a little bit, it was completely dark for us with no night vision, and we heard, we heard some you know, chatter, some foreign language chatter, and it got closer and closer, and then finally my buddy turns on his white light, and there's two Somalis with their AKs over their shoulder walking down the street, you know, like, like they forgot <laughs> where we were. <laughs> start to grab their guns and shoot us and he drops them and one of them takes off around a corner i'm shooting at him and you know i'm <laughs> i'm like how did these guys forget there's a crashed helicopter here and just walk on in and and by the way how did they walk past the other guys down the street you know maybe they weren't talking <laughs> they started chatting right in front of us and and my buddy white lighted them to see what was going on and there they were right in between us and f team and we just lit him up and one of them dropped and the other one took off running. I'm sure he's dead now, but he got, he got some, he got a burst of energy around the corner and got a, got away at least. Wow. But, uh, so, so I guess the, the question was more related to, um, how those, how the enemies are, uh, what they have in common and what the differences are, um, between what you saw in Somalia and then what you saw in Iraq. In, in Somalia, when I found out later that the leadership, they, they wanted to mortar us, but the leadership, their leadership would not let them because of all the civilians. I thought that was unique at the time um, that they that the clan took into consideration, you know, the other people living there. 
And we obviously didn't know it at the time, but thank goodness they didn't. They were, I'd say, less organized in Somalia, in my in my opinion, um, being just a guy on the ground getting shot at by everybody that could. Um, they obviously had enough organization to bring in more people, but they used more primitive techniques of burning fires and lighting tires on fire in the streets to block us and sending signals. Um, plus, it didn't help. We had our helicopters hovering overhead, which we also changed that tactic. Um, you know, don't don't ever have them hover overhead. It just tells everybody where you're at. And go to, <laughs> go to Iraq and fighting regime leaders. They're obviously they were obviously more. Um, educated and in tune and trained, but they also gave up more easily. You know, they also understood surrender and that, you know, live to fight another day or, or negotiate your way around something. And then we had the form fighters who were just trapped, you know, those good ideas. They want to join the Al Qaeda and defend, you know, Islam and whatever reason they went over there. And then they get their passports taken away and all their clothes and they can't get back across the border. They can't change their mind. And now they're given guns and told to wear suicide vests. And they, you know, they have no other option. They're, you know, you're going to do this. Some of those guys would turn when given the chance. But others, uh, I mean, guys that come from a foreign country that want to jump into a fight, you know, the Chechnyans or whatever that would come over. Those guys are vicious. And that's just kind of what they do for a living. And they're very intelligent. But then, then you get to the Al-Qaeda. You know, they've been training for some time, too. They're definitely a little bit more more trained than the form fighters they use. So they're kind of like, if you really think about it, it, it's kind of in tune with our military. You know, you've got the regular army guys come in, a little lower train, larger number of them. You know, the Marines just storm the beach and just mass numbers of people. And then you have, you move up in different special operations levels, more education, more, more surgical and strategic and they kind of did the same thing. They'd throw the lower-level guys at us in mass numbers. The suicide bombers were definitely the guys who didn't matter. Um, and they always had backups on them in case they changed their minds. You know, and then the leaders would surround themselves with more vicious foreign fighters to defend themselves. And you always knew when you were getting close. You know, it, you, the, the volume of fire would, would raise, and the training level was a lot higher. It was harder to get in. So if you really break it down, they kind of – and I, I would bet most militaries and most organizations that conduct battles like that kind of mirror, mirror that, you know, the lower level guys, just throw them at them. You know, the ones that make it a little more experienced, train them a little more, the more educated, train them a little bit better and, and uh, use them for the planning and the placement of everyone else. The pawns, if you will, you know. Right. So you, you've seen like a kind of a full spectrum of, uh, you know, opposition over there. Yeah, and, and that's what made it difficult was you you had to take into consideration who you were going for and who you, you know, okay, the regime leaders. If you get in there and surprise them, they'll probably give up. Foreign fighters in Al-Qaeda, if you get in there and surprise them, they're probably still going to fight to the death unless you really overwhelm them fast. Uh, it's just, and the viciousness, you know, the law of land warfare, they don't follow any of that. They do whatever they want. They don't care about civilian casualties. Um, so it's it's... It's like it morphed as the war went on, you know, when the Iraqi military kind of fell apart and and disappeared in the woodwork. You you weren't necessarily going to see them again as much. Um, Al Qaeda taking over, you know, and then the religious factions fighting each other. There's just their chance to go at it again, in my opinion. But it, 
you could definitely see the different levels of training and, and a mindset. And then when they started morphing and merging together, it was real difficult to kind of assess or get an intelligence assessment on a most likely, you know, avenue of approach or most likely course of action for the enemy would be fight to the death or turn and run. Okay. Well you get somewhere in the middle now and it's a little hard to figure out what's going to go on. So you hit every target the same. Obviously you never take one any lighter, but it was harder to get that good feeling of what might happen. A lot more surprises. Um, a lot more unexpected events would happen. And I, I mean, I hate to say it, but good on the enemy for keeping it like that. That's, that's what we do. You know, it's, uh, you can't do the same things over and over again and not expect someone to pick up on the pattern and then use it against you. And, and they definitely picked up on our patterns and started using it against us. So you have to morph with the enemy. You have to learn their TTPs and use them against them as just like they are using them against you. Right. Right. So also I wanted to ask you kind of transitioning out of the, the combat piece and, get a little more into the mindset and, and talk about, uh, you know, passing a selection. Um, you know, obviously for any special operations unit, there is a selection process. Uh, you know, if you wanted to be a green beret, if you wanted to go tier one, um, obviously all that stuff is difficult, uh, long periods of eating little food and getting little sleep and, you know, strenuous, uh, exercising and stuff like that. Uh, can we talk about what selection was like for you? Yeah, absolutely. Everybody runs their selection in about the same way, you know, just how to, how to mess with you physically and mentally and, and see who's going to stick with it. Um, yeah, I went to SFAS. It was a whole nother selection than selection for the unit. Um, I was in extremely great shape at the time. I was 150 pounds. I, I could jump and run anywhere. And, uh, I mean, I was, I was young and immature at the time, but physically fit for sure. And, I love land navigation. I was good at it. So in selection for the unit, they, they teach you everything you need to know. So anybody who doesn't go because they don't know something, I mean, the one thing they, they need to know is that they'll teach you everything you need to know to pass. You know, they can't get you in shape in time if you don't show up in shape, but everything you'll need skill-wise to pass selection, they teach you while you're there. And then they give you a chance to practice it, you know, with cadre leads. And then, and then they put you out on your own. Um, it was very physically demanding, but the only mental stress I had was was whatever I was self-imposed. A lot of other selection courses, they, they stress you out. They throw things at you. They scream at you. Selection for the unit was was everything was written on a chalkboard, you know, or a dry erase board nowadays. But they write it down. You read it. You do exactly what it says. They feed you well. Um, nobody really gets cut until the very end. Um, I'd say 90%, I'm throwing out numbers, but 90% of the people quit and there's a very small amount that are cut for standard. Um, and it, there's no rhyme or reason as to who makes it. You know, there's some of the best studs in the world have gone through and not, not been selected just based on, you know, uh, mental capacity or, or whatever the psychologists think about their maturity level and be able to make the right decisions. Um, it's more than just strength and endurance. And then there's some guys that, you know, guys from the Army Band have showed up and made it almost all the way through, you know, wearing jump boots of all of all types of the, the flat bottom, shiny toed jump boots. And that's what. <laughs> and I had no idea how he made it as far as he did. But that, that guy showed some serious tenacity, um, called him guitar man. He actually brought a guitar with him to selection. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) This guy had it going on and and all he wanted to do was pass advanced land navigation, which is, which is also a course we teach during selection up there. And if you make it to a certain level, you, you get an advanced land navigation certificate. And he just wanted, he he wanted to make it that far to help him get promoted over the rest of the army band guys. And he well over surpassed that and almost actually made it. And, but then we've had guys who have made it all the way through and then halfway through the operator training course decide this is not for me. You know, had a crane operator go through, made it, went to OTC and up to a point and then he got overwhelmed. He's like, this is just not for me and left. Um, one thing about when you're in the unit, selection is an ongoing process. You're being selected every day you're there. And that's almost a fear in guys that are there. Like, is my card going to work at the front gate today? You know, it's uh, when you tell guys selection is an ongoing process, it's not like if you make it, you're in. It's like, okay, you made it, you're in. Now you're on probation. Okay, now you're still being selected every day of your life that you're here. Um, keeps guys honest, keeps them uh, doing the right thing all the time. And, uh, Helps you surround yourself with the best people in the world that way. But I'd say most for selection is just if, if guys wanted to go to selection is just definitely be physically fit and have tough feet. I don't care how strong you are. If you have a if the entire backside of your heel is a, a raw blister, uh, you're not going to make it. I've seen guys cut their boots out, you know, almost turn their boots into flip flops. Their feet are so covered in blisters. Wow. It's just tough feet. I know when I was prepping for it, I would I would no socks, wet boots, and I'd go hump for 12 miles and, until my feet were pretty nasty, really, but um, tough. <laughs> and uh, it was no magic. I didn't have any magic uh, information. So a lot of guys had gone before. A lot of guys had known about it. I didn't know anything about it. I just went with what I had, and I was in shape, and I just took every day one at a time. And, uh, you know, just no quit. You can never, ever think of quitting because – you'll come to days where you will given the chance. I know on the, on the final long walk towards the end of it, I don't even know how far I'm into it. I probably got another 10 miles to go and I'm humping down this trail on top of a mountain and it's like a river. And I'm wondering to myself, how is there a river on top of a mountain? And it's the trail and, (laughs) and I'm changing the water in my boots, every puddle I step in and I'm just done. And I'm like, all right, next I'm looking at my map and it's like two or three map sheets away before my next RV. And I'm like, all right, there's an intersection. There's got to be a vehicle there. And if there's a vehicle there, I'm getting in it. That's it. You know, and I'm, I kept telling myself that. And one time I actually saw a vehicle and I was like, I, I got to get in this thing. I'm done. And I just kept walking. I kept telling myself to get in the vehicle, but I just kept walking. And I finally got out of sight and I kept going. And I'm, I'm glad I did, but you can't let your mind take over. You, you, you know, you can't give up mentally or the body will follow. Right. And um, how many years did you spend total uh, at the unit? Uh, 20 years in the unit. Okay. So now, like, touching on, you know, the mindset piece and passing selection, I would also like to talk about uh, a little bit of leadership stuff. Uh, I know you've uh, been in different roles in the unit as far as leadership. Can you talk about some of that as well? Yeah, absolutely. I was was a troop star major. And so – once you become a team sergeant on a team, I moved up on the exact same team my entire time there, and I became a team sergeant of that team. And then, and then they'll send you to OTC as an instructor. So now you're teaching the new guys coming in. And the way that they keep that um, fresh and quality is instead of sending the people you don't want on your team, 
you have to send people that you know you want to come back as a troop sergeant major and you have to take them back. So when the first, um, well, when this whole uh, 9-11 kicked off, that was actually the time frame for me to go be an instructor. And I was like, whoa, 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 now's not the time. They're like, nope, they keep, they keep everything the same. I know everybody wants to go to war, but they keep everything the same. So I missed those initial pushes. Um, got to listen to him on SATCOM, which was horrible. But I actually went to be an instructor, and I spent two years there and then started to come back. And they'd take you on a tour of Iraq, the places you're going to be um, stationed at with your, with, your, with your troop. So I go on a tour, and I'm, I'm running around with the other squadron that's there at the time, getting, getting to know the area. And then I come back and take my troop, and then I start taking my troop over to Iraq. And when you're a troop sergeant major, you're still involved in the hits, albeit you're not the first guys in the door anymore. You know, you, you got your team leaders and their teams, and I'm, I would never get in their way. Had some leaders that would come in and tell you what you're going to do. I was never that leader. I was the leader that would call the team leaders in. Here's the mission. Here's what we got. Here's the intel. Come up with a plan and brief me. And, and I don't think I ever, ever changed one of their plans because they're the ones going in the door. They have to be comfortable with that plan. And uh, actually, I would just I would let them come up with the plan and, you know, bounce it off the commander and everyone else. OK, is this tactically fit and sound? Yep. Looks good. All right. And then. They go in, they blow the doors in. I'm right behind them scooping up people. Um, my idea of being a leader was surrounding myself with as many smart people as possible and letting them do the work and, just, <laughs> and giving them everything they need to do it right, you know, because I can't do everything myself and I definitely don't know everything. And um, so I just surrounded myself with the best people possible. And then, then I was lucky enough to be selected to be the command sergeant major of the combat support squadron, you know, where they're in charge of EOD, dogs, NBC, and, um, heavy breachers. So everything that was direct support to the combat squadrons, I got to get, you know, in the canine as well, got get my hands involved and kind of mesh that up. And anytime we ever had um, operators say anything about support, like, well, you're just a support guy or you can't do this, you can't do that. Or any of my friends where I lived, well, I, you know, I learned to shoot from so-and-so. I bet I'm better than your support guys. I would, I would unleash the hell on them because <laughs> For every one operator at work, there's probably eight to 12 support guys helping them and, and enabling them to do their job. And that's one of the, the best things I learned being a combat support sergeant major was that uh, that those guys all have a job to do. We can't do it. And, and, and then up until you get out, knuckle dragging is great until you get out and you realize that's really not a skill. Dragging my knuckles around and being a, you know, a violent man. All these other support guys are the ones who had all the skills that they can take to the civilian world and spread. Um, we've got tactics and tenacity, but uh, you can't do it without the help. And then I was lucky enough to be able to stand up the fourth squadron when there was a time when all the different the Rangers were standing up fourth, you know, a fourth this, and the SF were standing up a fourth that. We stood up a fourth squadron. People were just getting tired and worn out. All the rotations back and forth. So I got I got to stand up uh, D squadron. And it took about a, almost two years to stand that up. And that, that about reaches the time of my uh, retirement. And I hear they're doing great things. Um, jumped right in and got involved. And it, it was great to bring the different personalities of the different squadrons together into one squadron. Because I got one troop from each squadron. And they're all a little different. And uh, to bring them all together and watch them argue on the right way to do the same thing <laughs> was, was kind of fun for a while. <laughs> But it's like, okay, enough of that. 
and I, and I started to learn. And I know I had PTS at the time. I was, you know, you'll talk to people. If, if you if you talk to people that knew me, they'd be like, oh, Tom's an asshole, but he's fair. You know, they always knew where I stood. I would blurt it out, be done with it, and move on. It was not a delicate, I was not a delicate thing at the time. I've learned uh, since then, and some of the ways that I've handled things is I lead with love and not fear. Because if you lead with love, you know, your guys are going to follow you no matter where you are, whether you're there or not. If you lead with fear, they're only going to follow you when you're there. And then when you're gone, they're going to do their own thing. So I've always learned to just let guys, uh, you know, surround yourself with the great people and let them do what they know how to do and don't get in their way and just enable them and support them. Wow, that's awesome. And and also, I think it's it's cool to kind of just talk about the support guys, because um, even even those, you know, the operators and, and the people, you know, kicking in the doors and stuff like that. A lot of people don't kind of realize it, but there's so much that goes into that, you know, the intelligence and, and you know, the logistics of it. And um, I think it's just important to kind of, you know, remind people once in a while that, you know, all that stuff is kind of cool. You know, people like the whole like door kicker stuff, but there's so much that goes into that, you know, before that happens. Right. And uh, you know what? Everybody has a part to play. Everybody's part is important. And nobody's part is any more important than anyone else's because nobody could get it done without the other other people in the group helping out. And that is so key to know that and, and to be humble in what you do. But also I see some support guys putting themselves down or, or afraid to mention their jobs or or the guys out there that that lie about what they do. You know, they're in the army. They do a job. Maybe they're a cook. Maybe they're I don't know. But, oh, you know, I was a ranger over here and they're lying. I'm like, well, what's wrong with the job you did? There's nothing wrong with the job you did, you know. Own it and enjoy it and, and be proud of it. Right. And I exactly. And I think, you know, anybody who serves, you know, I think it's it's awesome and honorable. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody's in service. Everybody's helping out. And it's just it's like a slice of society. We need everybody in society to pitch in. I mean, you know, if you're a cook in the army, I love the cooks, man. They they fed me well. They kept me going, you know. Right. I love the Intel guys because without them, we're going nowhere. We're just knocking down doors. And the combo guys, the medics, I mean, they all have a part to play no matter how big or small it is. And that's more so than telling operators not to to bust on support guys at all and to act cocky and condescending, but more for the support guys to understand how important their role is no matter what anybody says to them. Right. Right. So now, you know, you you were at the – the tail end of your career, you're, you're, you know, getting out, you said you had, you, you knew that you had some PTS. Um, can, can we talk about that a little bit? You know, what Tim likes to focus on in his projects is the transition piece. Um, you know, obviously that's a very important part of it. You know, first you have your, your service, your time in and your experiences, and then you have to figure out a way to, you know, get out and continue to, you know, to push and stuff like that. Um, and, and, you know, and that's just what Tim specializes in. Tim, you want to take over? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. What was that like, Tom, uh, for you, you know, you're, you're nearing the end of your career and you kind of probably knew at that moment. I mean, did you know that you were going to get out? Was that a conscious decision or were you kind of, you know, um, were you kind of surprised by it? Was it, was it something that you made a choice, you know, a conscious decision years ahead of, or did you kind of come up on that moment and just have an epiphany and say, yeah, well, it's time to, it's time to hang it up. Yeah. 19, I reenlisted for another six 
and uh, I knew I'd never do that again. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I almost didn't do it then, but the money was too good. So, and I was in a job that I liked, and it just kind of matched. I was going to get out at twenty, but then you know the bonuses, and it's a good thing that came up. And I still loved what I was doing. But when I reached twenty six, when I reached about twenty four to 25 years, I, I couldn't get out quick enough. I had had enough. I was burnt. I was going downhill and I knew it. I knew my job was going to start suffering. I mean, I turned to drinking, um, and, and just shying away. I, I wasn't enjoying going to work anymore. I, I loved where I worked, but I, I wasn't enjoying it anymore. And I was drinking more and I put no thought into transitioning other than I can't wait to turn in my TA-50, my gear, get out of here, do this, you know, and then, oh, I got to go over to Womack and, and sit in all these stupid briefings. And I didn't care. I was a wreck. And I probably should have sat in on a lot of them. I, I'd, I'd go to the briefing on how to write a resume. I'm like, I have a resume. So I'd sign in, go to the bathroom, never walk back in there. And I, I did some briefings that way. And and then then I'm out. And I don't even have a job. You know, I, I haven't put a thought into it. I'm thinking my retirement check, I'm good to go, right? <laughs> you know, and, and I'm lucky I got offered a job and I spent that year and a half in Jordan. Um, I got back into it. You know, I got back into setting up training. It was a civilian thing now, so, and the pay was better, but I was doing it for the money, you know? So it's for all the wrong reasons. And, and, and once again, I'm away from my family for a year and a half, minus every three months I'm home for 10 days to see my son and my, my ex-wife now. Um, and going down that path of, of ruin, ruining my family, if you will. And that's not an easy way to transition out of the military and then lose your family at the same time. And I see a lot of guys do it. They get out, they don't know what to do, so they get back into another of those, those other agencies where they can go and do the same thing they've been doing just for more money and they're never home. And, you know, I don't know if anything's higher than suicide, it's probably divorce. And, and it's a horrible thing. All my friends losing their kids, losing their wives and they're miserable and they want to look back and change it when all they needed was a little assistance in, okay, the tenacity you put into the military, put it into the civilian world. Now we get out and we're afraid because it's unknown and everybody's, everybody's, you know, talks bad or, or puts things down that they don't understand, whatever they fear, you know? And I feared getting out. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how I would transition or how I'm going to get a job. And so now my, my part is, is, is teaching people that it's never too late to start over. I didn't have my life figured out at 23 or 25. I had no clue. I don't think anybody does. And now I'm 51 and I'm starting off with a new nonprofit and, you know, a new for-profit, a book, um, I do business development for for asymmetric solutions where we're, you know, starting to bring in lots of military contracts to give back and train these new guys. But I'm spreading out as much as possible. And it was terrifying to do it. And everybody says the same thing. And, and my, my lesson and my my mission is to tell everyone that we all have that fear. We all are afraid. We all think we're not good enough. And we all think that the other person thinks that about us. But we impose it on ourselves. And if we just yeah. talk to each other, we'll realize that we all have the same fears and we start laughing about it. It's, it's almost ridiculous. You know, what we, what we think we hide from each other, but we all have it. Getting out is a scary, scary thing. Some of the guys manage it better than others. The smart ones, the really smart ones, you know, they, they really lay it out and they have a plan and they know what to do. But a lot of the guys that have been just kicking in doors and going into combat over and over and over again, 
they're relying on contract work or repeating the same thing, which doesn't do your family any favors. Right. Can you speak to that a little bit, Tom? Can you speak to, uh, you know, chasing and kind of finding your passion in life and, and knowing and that, knowing you know, that, that you know, may not necessarily be the way that you need to go. You don't have to get out and, you know, uh, go over on contracts, you know, and, and do some of the same things that you did while you were in. What about chasing that passion? Uh, would you tell guys in getting out now? Every person I talk to, they're like, I'm, I want to do contract work. I'm going to do this, that, military related. I'm like, well, okay, but what do you like to do? <laughs> well, I like music. Okay, well, why don't you go into music? Why don't you use your GI Bill or something that you have and go take music lessons or go practice your music? Go go do your music, depending on how good you are. And they're like, well, I don't really know if I'm good enough. I go, okay, shut up, because <laughs> you weren't a commando when you joined the Army, were you? It took a process to get there. So – Use that same process. Start off, work at it hard, and go get it done. And another person, well, I like to paint, but the guys that make fun of me, I go, you know what? Uh, I don't know if you can cuss on here. Screw everybody else, you know? <laughs> <laughs> tell everybody to go pound sand that tells you you can't paint. Because if you can paint, I mean, President Bush paints. Everybody, people who $54 million for a Monet, I mean, okay, that's money. That's the money. Now, I'm not going to say you're going to be a Monet, but – you know, right. they, they follow their passion. And if you love what you're doing, the money will follow. If you do it for money, you're going to be miserable and it'll never get there for you. You have to find out what you want to do, what makes you happy. If you have a family, run it by them. Make sure they're good with it because now you're in a unit. You know, you went from being gone all the time to being home more with your wife. That's that's a whole reintegration piece you got to get over and, 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 and learn each other again. But Follow your passions. I mean, I had no passion. I just kept doing what I knew to do, doing what I knew to do up until the day I almost killed myself. And then I found my why, you know, I found my passion. And and ever since then, I've been following it and things have just been falling in place, falling in place. And, you know, it's a lot of work, but like everything else, there's a lot of work as well. Get my ass off the couch, put down that bottle or whatever it is, you're, you know, guys are taking drugs and what is an excuse this, excuse that, you know. And I help people and I'm not that hard-nosed, like, oh, screw you, get over it. I understand there's a process, but there's also an excuse behind every reason you don't do something. I think that's unique, right? The the whole part of uh, getting out and transitioning and, and knowing, you know, you spoke about the support about some of the support guys and how they have those unique skill sets. And so it's very often easier when they get out, but the door kickers and, and the guys that were on the ground, they have their own skill sets as well that may not transition over in a way that they thought they would, but those leadership skills, the skills of handling stress. I mean, you can't teach some of those skills, right? Absolutely. And the guys that get out in higher positions and I found that a lot of guys that get out almost mimic the level that they got out at. That's where they kind of hover. You know, you get you, the Chris Ferris's and the Bill Thetford's and when they get out, you know, or the generals when they get out, you know, oh, boom, you can be a CEO of a company now maybe, or, or they're going to hire you for your name and what you've done. Some of the mid-level guys that get out don't feel that they've, they have those skills, but they do, you know, it's hard to, it's easy to lead a group full of leaders. I mean, in the unit, everybody's a leader. There's like five E9s on one team. I mean, it's, it's how are you going to tell that guy what to do? He already knows. Um, 
but you have that skill of that decision making under under stress, which is in any business, everything's stressful when it comes down to making a lot of money or, or getting a sale or something. But they just have to apply that in a different fashion because they already have that skill, that underlying skill um, of leadership and management and how to get people to motivated to do something. How do I get this group of people motivated to go, you know, I don't know, sell cars, whatever it is. Well, you've got a group of guys motivated enough to run out in front of bullets. I think you can motivate some guys to go sell a car, you know, <laughs> but they don't look at it like that. And, and that's, that's kind of trying to change their thought process. It's like, have a little faith in yourself. Just because you're no longer being a commando doesn't mean you're still not a good person and good at what you do. And a guy hit me up the other day. Hey, my job's almost up. I need to get back to doing what I used to do so I can feel, you know, who I am again. And I, and I, I need you to talk to my wife. I'm like, there's no way in hell I'm going to talk to your wife and letting you go overseas. <laughs> you. That, That's that, a death that, wish right there, Tom. <laughs> I said, why don't you just teach people? And, you know, I'm looking to get him a job now. And, and there's plenty of jobs out there looking for quality people. It's just guys want the big money sometimes. They do the contract work for the big money, but it's less stable. Or do you want a lower paying job, but it's more stable and you get a check every two weeks, you know? Right. But but the skills are there and they just need to relook at what it is they have or find out what they want to do next. And it's not too late to start over. Never too late to start over. Can you speak specifically to some of the things that uh, drive you now? Some of the, you know, the things that make you happy to wake up every day? What is it specifically that's driving you now? When I get a text from people I don't know, I got one today. It's very sad. He sent me a photo. Um, I wish I could post it. Uh, SAS guy. And when they send me statistics from a podcast, um, every time I do a different podcast, it's, I get a hundred texts from people I don't know. Tom, you helped me move mountains. Tom, you, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little emotional. Um, you help me see that it's okay to hurt or you, you know, and, and if, if I don't hold myself on a pedestal, but if somebody else does, Oh, you were in Delta. Oh, you were CSM. Oh, you did this and that. If somebody looks at that and says, if I cry or I admit weakness or pain, it makes it okay for them. I'll use it for that. And I got a photo and a text from a guy in the UK. Uh, his friend just killed himself today. Um, he, you know, when they got back from Iraq, he had PTS and this gentleman made it happen and he, and he, and he moved on with his life and his friend did not. And, uh, and they were, they were close. And so it's like, wow, how can these two guys, and he sent me a picture of both of them. And this guy was a, a star major, you know, in the, in the SAS. And around the world, people, the, 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 the message is the same. And so when I wake up, I roll over, I grab my phone. I mean, I wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and I grab my phone. And I, I try to always be there. My wife's on me about that because of screen time and messing up the sleep patterns. But it's almost an addiction for me now to help other people. And, and it also helps me to do that. So there's, you know, you have to be, I heard a saying the other day, you have to be selfish to be... You almost have to be selfish to help other people because you have to first be squared away and together. And so you have to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. So, I mean, I literally had to turn selfish and take care of myself instead of the life of service I was doing 
and get my shit together before I could help anyone else. And once I, and I'm still doing that, but in the process, I started helping more. And so that drives me every day to get those messages or to be asked to, to talk to people, to share my experiences, to help anybody that'll listen. And every time I guarantee it, that I will get hundreds of texts from people. Hey, great job. I, I shared it with a friend and it saved his life or I'm a week ago, somebody's about to kill themselves and, and shot me a text and they saw my video and that, that stopped them. And, and that is my driving factor. Amazing. Yeah. Are you referring to the video you did with the Havoc Journal? Am I what? Are you referring to the video that you did with the Havoc Journal? Yeah. The Havoc Journal, for some reason, um, brought in more than I did one at Congress and that video's out there. I did, I did several other ones, but the, the Havoc Journal one, more of a setup outside and kind of just talk really brought in a lot of people. And, and, um, with the audio issues issues and the wind blowing, I was nervous that it wasn't as good, but everybody's hitting me up about the Havoc Journal video yeah. and how awesome it is and how it's reached them at a deeper level. And it's really opened the door for me to reach more people as well. Um, just having followers and, and then I guess, I don't know the message that, to me, the message feels the same, but maybe I laid it out differently. Um, and it's what a lot of people are saying. It's just, it seemed like it was just conversation. It was kind of, not staged and not a lot I do is staged when I first started I notes and notes and notes and notes and I'd read off the notes a bit and I got to where I felt fake and I and I hated it and I tried to I wanted to just talk I just wanted to talk right. stuff I got to manage that with not going over time and talking and getting my story out and not forgetting things with TBI and PTS sometimes I forget where I'm going so I'll have notes to keep me online but it's all from my heart and if I say the wrong thing, I can always back up and say, oh, I didn't mean that. I meant this. And and I find that people understand because nobody's perfect. And if they expect perfection out of me, they got the wrong guy for sure. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, it's actually how I, um, you know, I saw that video. I thought it was great. And, uh, you know, shout out to the people at the Havoc Journal. They do some great work. And it was, you know, they were the ones who kind of, you know, gave me your email, hooked me up with you. Um, so, you know, big shout out to the Havoc Journal. And, um so you have your foundation. Um, can we say the name of it? And if anyone's interested in, in contacting or reaching out, uh, can you also let people know where they can do that at? Okay, so we can be contacted um, several different ways. We have a Facebook account called All Secure Foundation. And if you just type that in on Facebook, you can pull it up. And we were pretty responsive to that. As well as our website is allsecurefoundation.org. And, and if you log on the website, there's talks a little bit about what we do and there's ways to contact us. And as well, we're adding an all secure mission, which is a for-profit. However, it's going to be very low cost online courses for family reintegration, how to deal with transitions. Um, we'll have some therapists and psychologists adding courses on there for, you know, how to deal with your marriage or your children after deployment, how to deal with stress. Um, nutrition is a big one. We like to get guys, um, healthy first, whatever you put in your gut goes to your brain and your brain's the largest energy producing item in your body. And it's just firing on all cylinders unless you start feeding it alcohol and booze and crap food. So ways to get people cheaper, cheaper ways to get help. And those guys won't come out of their houses. Some of them, they don't want to get off the couch. So we, we, we thought if we offer it online and we keep it very, very low, 
basically just the cost that we put into designing it. And then if we have to pay someone to write these, you know, and then we spread that out over, you know, whoever buys these things, it keeps the cost pretty low. That can get them started and that can get them realizing that they're okay. All Secure Foundation, we're a resource library to where we're a 501c3 and we're, we're starting to set up fundraisers um, for the end of this year and next year. Lots of exciting things going on that we'll be posting on there. People can donate to us as well, and that money goes to help veterans and their families with issues or to get them to, say, warrior's heart if you have an addiction. Or if it's more religious-based and you need some kind of spiritual counseling, you know, you can go to Reboot out in Colorado or Mission 22. We, we partner with as many vetted nonprofits that help veterans. We keep all the costs either very low or, or we do it, we pay it for you, or we find a donor that will. And we just, our wish is to get people talking and to ask those questions and to admit that they need a little help and that not everybody's a badass. I mean, even badasses need the most help. So, you know, you can go on and help out in any way. So then we, all we ask for veterans are you, you help other veterans in return because that also helps in your counseling. We're not about sending guys on um, hunting retreats and vacations. Or, or sending a, a veteran family to Disney World is probably the worst thing you can do if he's got PTS. So first, we get you in, we get you help, we get you healthy, we get you right, and then you help us help other veterans, and then you get the rewarded with the trip. And what we do is, is we found that if you don't have any skin in the game, it's easy to turn it off. Like, oh, I have this retreat coming up, or I have this event coming up I'm supposed to go to. I didn't pay for it, so I can cancel it. So... What we're thinking about doing is having them maybe pay for their airfare or a portion of their airfare. So now they've got some skin in the game. Now everything else is covered. But if they start to back out, okay, now they're going to, you know, they might lose their own money on that versus, well, it's someone else's airfare. I don't really care, you know. So we make you have a little bit of responsibility for it. Every time you give somebody something free, they have a little bit less respect for it, I think. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, definitely awesome. And, um, you know, I'm glad you came on today and we were able to do this. And, you know, like you were saying before, when you when you do some of this stuff, you know, you never really know who you're affecting in a positive way. And um, with the reach of the platform, I hope that someone who's struggling or someone who needs to maybe hear some encouraging words from someone with your experience can, can hear it and it can really help somebody. Um, so, you know, thank you for doing this and thank you for your service as well. Thank you, John. Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure meeting both of you guys. Yes, Tom, it's great to have you on and honor. And uh, thank you for sharing your experiences with us, not just on the combat side, but the reintegration side. It's so important for these guys to hear uh, about the transition part um, and know that even a badass command sergeant major from the unit needs a little help every once in a while, you know? <laughs> I need a whole lot of help. They can... <laughs> <laughs> I'll admit to that. <laughs>